You know, it's, it's as though he wants protection, not only from those outside the church, but from the spiritual warfare that can abound within. And get this, if prayers are not made to prevent it from happening. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, Your Word is like nothing else in the universe on this planet. You know, men write books. Men tell stories, men make up things. Idolatry and philosophies that are idolatrous have been rampant for 6,000 years or so. Lord, uh, but there's one book that began uh, in men's hearts who were believers by election. But then came Sinai and the law, the giving of law through Moses, setting the people free. And God was speaking. I know you spoke to Adam and Eve. You spoke to Abel. You spoke to men down through the centuries, the long centuries, and made them what they became in your word in life. They became a light. They became preachers of righteousness and prophets and priests, true ones, authentic ones, by the hand of, an, of, of Almighty God. I ask your Heavenly Father now that these words, this teaching, would you know, just hide the speaker behind the cross. May we only see Jesus. May we understand these things for what they are. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Remove us, Lord, from the box that we create of blindness by idolizing people and organizations and institutions and things that are not pleasing to you. They're idols. Some may appear good, but at the end of the day, an idol is an idol, and it's, it's a reproach to the living God. Deliver us from that. Allow us to walk in the truth. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a second part, really, of a Roman treatise. This is on the book of Romans. I've named this Building Up a Unified Body. Building Up a Unified Body. It's from chapters 15 and 16 from Paul's letter to the Romans. As we approach, once again, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Let us consider the history of Israel as it turned out in the end and how it was meant to be by God. Those are not exactly the same. Of course, what God planned always comes about. But there's what God lays out, laid out for Israel, and then there's what happened. So we begin by the world being entirely destroyed except for eight people 1,440 years after its creation. Sin 
began big and grew like a cancer until the thoughts of men were evil continually. As God started with one man, Adam, and one woman, Eve, God started and Abraham, that man, whom he called, who God called him from the land of Ur. This is Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, quote, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. Abraham was taken from his family, even though he took his father with him. You know, here's an important point. God never, never chooses perfect people. For that matter, he never chooses sinless people. He calls the lost who are dead in sins and trespasses. Paul, in writing to the Colossians believers in chapter 2, 11-14, said, quote, In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him, through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out our out the certificate of debt consisting of de decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In the New Testament, saints were dead in trespasses and sins. <laughs> what were the Old Testament saints? Answer, no different. And what did God do with Abraham? How much did he transform him into a different kind of person? Abraham was so different in time that he took his beloved son and was willing to kill him, sacrifice him on an altar because God said so, and believe that God would raise him from the dead. I mean, do you think that's the way Abraham was, was born? You think it just came from him to be that way? This is the same Abram who years before gave his wife away to save his own life. When people talk about Old Testament saints as if sanctification and transformation of character did not take place in their life as it does in Christians today, and I just want to laugh, but I end up crying. We have the Spirit, and they didn't, is just another form of corrupting pride. Abraham received, and, 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 and just remember that in the light that God is eternal. It's not bound by time. Abraham received the son after he and Sarah were beyond their years to have children, and that son turned into a nation. Abraham left his family and from his loins a new nation conceived in transformation and the liberty that set Father Abraham free to love and serve God as he could never have done without the grace, forgiveness, love of God and rebirth of the Holy Spirit. Then came the call to an entire nation to be freed from the slavery in Egypt. Here's the key, and we'll complete our introduction. But not before making the point that connects both the Old Testament call of Israel and the New Testament call of the church. 
Israel was not set free to serve themselves, neither were they given the law, the covenants, the promises, the prophets, and the sacrificial system that point to the coming Messiah to judge themselves as better than everyone else, but to inhabit the promised land for God in the midst of hardship, persecution, and suffering. There's the call of Israel. Now Paul will say, therefore, when Paul wrote chapter 15, he began by saying, quote, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. There it is. We're not here to please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, quote, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And that's Paul quoting scripture. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And remember, that's all they had. They didn't have a New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament. That was more than enough. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may be you may with one voice glorify the God of Father <clears throat> and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pleasing ourselves is the death of our spiritual life and fulfilling the will of God in our lives. No, the admonition is to please our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? But first of all, our brethren in the body of Christ. Building up the brethren does not mean excluding the lost outside the church, but just as family comes first. But not only so, the church comes first. In chapter 14, we were instructed to not make a brother stumble over eating food, putting the brother over the person who is lost and sees nothing wrong with the food, that is the lost person, we're putting the brother first. But by putting the brother first, the lost can see a love that does not exist in the world. I mean, you're not eating anymore because you don't want this brother to stumble. Wow, that's, maybe that's something I might want to be part of. And what is the building up of others in the church centered on in Paul's instructions? Well, let's uh, let him tell us, quote, for even Christ did not please himself as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The reproaching speaks of persecution, accusations, strife, and so forth. There is anything but harmony in the world. There are a multitude of differences and divisions among people groups, and what people need to see is unity and love. For this reason, Paul continued, may, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may be with one voice, glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. I'm sorry, but the church today is anything but of the same mind. And I'm not talking about an individual church where most people are on the same page. Probably not all. 
I'm talking about Church Universal. Well, we can't control that. Really? Let's stop. Let's think about that for a second. But he, you know, he doesn't say of the same mind only. He says, according to Christ Jesus. Because God is anything but confused or divided. And if we were all in the type of communion with God that we make ourselves believe, if we were really understanding what his will was, well, you're going to tell me it would be divided then? Everyone is not right, and more important issue is getting it right so that, so that we would be of one accord and have only one voice. If all evangelicals didn't have names that made them different, what, what would that voice, how loud would that voice be? How loving would that voice be? Only when we have one voice do we glorify God the Father. So wherever we're wrong, we need to change. And then we come in harmony with other people. But you have to be in the wrong, and you have to be willing to correct what's wrong. Not to look at your brother and say, hey, you're wrong. When you are wrong, it doesn't work that way. Just think how all the divisions that now exist make Jesus feel. He came to glorify the Father, glorify your Son. Jesus said, so that your Son may glorify you. He said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, when God glorified the Son, he put Jesus' holiness on display before the entire world. He was set apart to the Father's will, which he did when he who knew no sin became sin for us. Sin must be dealt with to set the sinner free, and that Christ was willing to do to his own eternal suffering. I can't comprehend that, but we will suffer for eternity if left without the blood of Christ to cover us. So Christ had to suffer that eternity. And he's eternal, so that's all I need to know. That's all you need to know, should need to know. Equally, Jesus put the Father's holiness on display by sacrificing his beloved son for wicked and wretched sinners. The holiness placed on display is what the Bible calls the glory of God. However, what does the church place on display? Petty disputes, denominational arguments, split churches, lukewarm Christianity, griping and complaining in, in one of the richest countries on earth, petty squabbles, which may even be about gospel deficiencies. But what makes them petty is that they always place self above others beneath. But what does Paul say? Now we who are strong are to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. We should not turn even something as important as the truth, and there's nothing more important, into a reason to make ourselves look better than others. Let us pray, pay close attention to Paul's words in verse 7 to 12. Quote, Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth, of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written, quote, 
Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. Paul here is speaking to the greatest division in the world, and it has always been that way. That is, the division between God's people and the children of wrath, Jew and Gentile, was monumental for the first church because they only slowly got the message that God was turning from using Israel as the message bearer to the world, that is the Gentile world, to using every nation, tongue, and tribe. This is no small matter. He repeats the Gentiles again. In 10, again, he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. 11, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people praise him. And then Paul changes it up to clearly show the contrast in the way God operates and the way worldly-minded people operate. Verse 12, again, Isaiah says, quote, There shall come the root of Jess, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Rule over the Gentiles through the root of Jess, that's Jesus Christ. Paul does not allow the transition from Jew to Gentile to end as if that is all there is, but turns it around to a coming day when the root of Jess, that is the son of David, the Israelite, will sit on the throne of his earthly Jewish father, David. Ultimately, as Paul was speaking through Romans 9, 10, and 11, it, it It is not about the supremacy of Jew or Gentile, but the sovereignty of El Elyon, or the Almighty God. Now, people look at this and they'll say, no, he's ruling over Gentiles right now, Gentiles right now, in in their hearts. Well, of course, he's always done that. Meaning, it was always the remnant in Israel, and you had the nation of Israel, that was, what what was it? it? They weren't saved They were lost. He only had 7,000 people at the time of Elijah. But a day is coming, and it's always been prophesied to come, when the whole nation would be saved. Now, people have struggled with that, but it doesn't matter whether you have a struggle or not. What matters is what the Bible says. He's talking about Gentiles, 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 and then he's talking about the root of Jess, and he's talking about ruling the Gentiles. Now, the massive amount of people in the world during that thousand-year reign are not going to be saved. And there's a mass of people at the end that are destroyed. There's still a remnant. I don't know what the percentages will be. I know when Jesus reigns, the way he will reign for that thousand years, it's going to mean some serious differences. But it's a serious reign for 1,000 years. Different the world will be completely different. It's going to go back to the way it was before the flood. I don't want to digress. But let us not miss the fact that there was to be harmony between Israel and the Gentiles within the New Testament church, just as there will be on a renovated earth where 12 Jewish apostles will sit judging the 12 tribes of Israel for 1,000 years. I mean, that's what it says in Revelation. You can twist it if you want. I would suggest you don't. Unity is to be the name of the game, which is never meant to be a game. 
but an equality of all peoples and tribes and nations under the loving, righteous, forgiving, and wrathful Lamb of God. Following that seven years, people will understand the wrath of the Lamb, mentioned three times in the book of Revelation. When harmony reigns and not division, Paul, pa- Paul hands us his blessing. Quote, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope is faith in the future. And the future should be filled with humility and not foolish pride, whether it's over ethnicity, denominational differences, quote-unquote church movements, so-called Holy Spirit revivals, so-called, which usually never call people out for their sins, which that could never be revival. When the church is as it is supposed to be, then we can have the kind of confidence that Paul did. Beginning in verse 14, he writes, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, quote, They who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. End quote. And I love that Paul says to a Gentile church, and not governed by the leadership of the apostles. And this is what he said, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another, end quote. Do you know that probably 20% or, or one out of in every five people in Rome, under Roman rule was a slave? Probably not the brightest or most educated, certainly not in godly wisdom and understanding, but what does he say? Filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. Which one attended a seminary? Pardon my sarcasm. These are not bragging rights given with a price or a piece of paper that says we have a, an MDiv or, God forbid, a doctorate in the hands of a person under the weight and warfare of demonic and spiritual warfare. You know what the devil can do with that? No, this is something a little bit more Holy Spirit-based. Look at the, at the humility of Paul when he writes... Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. 
resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. Just a vessel. He's just a vessel. There's no pride in being a vessel. That's like being a piece of pipe and bragging about like your water. Yeah, no, the water's running through you. You're just the pipe. And some might say, how is it humble when he continues, quote, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit? In the power of the Spirit. Let us remember that Paul was a persecutor of the church who himself became a fugitive because of Pharisaical pride and violence against any non-Jew who contradicted their beliefs. He was sent to the very people he despised because of his national heritage. He's broken over that. Brokenness is not a basis for pride. Unbrokenness, that's a basis for pride. Question to my hearers, how often are you broken? How many times have you been broken? Where are you? Nevertheless, it was the power of God in him, and not he himself, who got the glory because Paul had nothing to do with his own transformation. Paul covered so much ground going to the Gentiles that he could say, as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, quote, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. He kept pushing out and pushing out, and in the midst of beatings, stonings, rejections of every kind, and violence of every kind, today, you know, we, we don't even want to hear ridicule or harsh words said about our preaching, let alone violence. I mean, God forbid a pastor gets a negative word when he's standing at the door. We need to take into account the national differences, the religious differences, and the spiritual warfare that was already beating down on the head of the church at that time. Let us remember, by the time John was old, he received a revelation from Jesus Christ concerning seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. However, Paul speaks of the good and godly things that were going on in this way, verses 22 to 29. Quote, for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in this region, and since I have had many years uh, longing to come to you, when, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia or Europe and Achaia have been placed to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them for the Gentiles, have shared in their spiritual things. They are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in fullness of the blessing of Christ. You know, there is finances included in helping him on his way. Of course, spiritual needs being met as well. There was always the poor making sure that they were not becoming self-centered to forget the basic needs of life and showing no earnest concern for the needs of all people. Paul shows grace to all people while continually admonishing the church wherever he might be to seek the things that 
make for peace. And most of all, one accord and mind. However, moving on to chapter 16, it is vitally important that we know that Paul did not take these things for granted or believe in God as a believer in fatalism. Because if that were the case, he, he never would have closed chapter 15 the way he did. Quote, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that I might my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. And the God of peace be with you all. Amen. There's a lot in between the lines there. Spend some time reading and meditating on it. You know, it's, it's as though he wants protection, not only from those outside the church, but from the spiritual warfare that can abound within. And get this, if prayers are not made to prevent it from happening, you know, if there's no prayer, devil can wreak havoc. As we get to Romans chapter 16, we arrive at the church chapter, the house church chapter of the New Testament epistles. Not there are no others because there are many references made, but here there is a consolidation of many. He begins by saying, quote, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Chancria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. End quote. There's only one reference made to this dear saint in the New Testament who is referred to by name, but also as her twice, she uh, twice referred to as, you know, referring to as her, and she twice, making clear that uh, she, uh, or Paul, is not against women serving in the church, as some seem to think. He refers to her as a deacon or servant. He puts her first, by the way. No doubt, since Paul was giving her high praise, she knew her place in the church and did not usurp authority over men or teach them according to Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 2. It's very bad when we twist the word of God. Paul's next words of praise are, Greet Prisca and Aquila. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles, also greet the church that is in their house. You know, there can be no higher praise in a person's heart than for those willing to lay down their life for them. There is no great love, no greater love, and there is no greater sacrifice. No doubt all the churches were giving thanks because the Apostle Paul meant so much to those churches for his ministry among them. After all, they were saved from the fires of hell for all eternity because of God's ministry through the Apostle Paul. Is that 
the goal of today's church in the West? I mean, is are we really concerned about saving people from hell? Is it preached often? I ask that question simply because many churches and pastors are more than eager to fill buildings, but are as concerned are they as concerned to fill them with authentic believers? I once hear dear brother MacArthur so railed against in so many places preach on how much God hates it when believers and non-believers worship together. You know, he throws people out of his church. How many times I've heard that? Got actually into an argument with somebody years and years ago in a bookstore. And she was behind the counter. The only way to gauge the answer to my question is to a- assess with objectivity, if there is a pressing need for people to be transparent and to care more about the souls of men and women than their feelings. Are people in the church willing to confront others because there does not seem to be sufficient fruit in the way they live and the way they walk to commend them as authentic in the faith? I mean, I've been part of a church that really laid that out that It should be that way. And I wish I could say, you know, with all assurance that it was always carried out, but I have serious doubts. And and other churches don't even make mention of it. I mean, at least it was made mention and was carried out to some extent. Just recently, my son went to Nepal on a mission trip and beheld a baptism where a woman was threatened with death by her husband if she were to be baptized. You know, he didn't hear how the story ended. I certainly didn't. But she was baptized. That seems to be a pretty clear indication of her resolve to name the name of Jesus Christ and live for him. Do we know her heart? No. Do we see sufficient fruit? Absolutely. Concerning Prisca and Aquila, Paul made mention that the church was in their house. Paul makes this statement not as a rare thing or different because there was no church buildings in those days. The church had to be in someone's house. It might have been a little house. It might have been a big kind of multi-building things with servants. In, In any case, the church had to be in someone's house and he made reference to where the church was that he speaks most kindly when he says, quote, Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me, end quote. If you want a recommendation, how would you like to be outstanding among the apostles? He's not saying they were apostles, but they were among them. They, too, were prisoners of Christ, which no doubt is part of their being outstanding. The list of names in Paul and people by Paul tells of many outstanding traits. And these specific people greet Amipliotus, my beloved in the Lord. Beloved in the Lord tells of their personal relationship and that is based on a mutual intimacy with Jesus Christ, which made them beloved to one another. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Here, there is the work which makes them servants for Christ and not merely people who sit around talking a good game while doing little to nothing. And Stachys, 
my beloved. Sometimes we, we just love people who communicate that they're lovable, you know? They're, they're just lovable. We have all met people that are anything but lovable. This person was the opposite. Verse 10, greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. I love this. There's nothing more important than to be approved in Christ. No doubt this person's life made it so clear, at least to the Apostle Paul, that they were a, a Christ, a Christian, and a follower of Christ, that it even became evident that they were approved. I mean, this is not something Paul just does lightly. I mean, he said he didn't even judge his own self. You know, before the appointed time, when God brings to light the hidden things and makes manifest the motives of people's hearts, and he's not doing that here. He's just seeing a tree full of fruit. I mean, this guy's got to be approved. He's saying to himself. Quote, greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. End quote. Here we're back to household. Or a church family that are cutting out a territory for Jesus Christ. He's not just talking about a, a building or even a family member's but a family where love, devotion, defense of one another blossoms into a, a land with God's name on it. There's something different in this household because they belong to God in the person of his son. That's got to be seen as Paul speaks to them in, in this way. Greet the household. It's a household. It's not a church. It's not an institution. It's a, it's a household. It's a family. You go in there, you're really brothers and sisters. You got a need, you're going to meet the need. You, know, you got a need, you're going to get your need met. Then Paul says, greet Herodian, my kinsman. He does not say in the flesh, as he did when referring to Israel. Like, you know, we're all this, the same group, like Italians or, or Ita uh, Americans or Jews, you know. The same blood, and American's a bad example, Japanese. So he may have been a blood, he may have been a blood relative. He says nothing other than that he may not have wanted, I don't know, he may not have wanted to look like he was showing favoritism. That's just a stupid guess on my part, probably not true. Then he points out, once again, the household. Quote, greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord, end quote. When Paul uses the preposition in, as he did in nearly every phrase in the opening verses of Ephesians 1, he's, he's referring to a person's identification with Christ. The person finds their identity in Christ, and it is that identity that gives them a sense of self, who they are, who they belong to, what they're doing, the reason why they exist. This reason is completely contrary to the philosophy of this present world system. You know, we're all just independent, particularly in America. The household of Narcissus was a household of people whose identity was consumed by the person of Jesus Christ. This is a great recommendation. Again, Paul returns to workers and not seat warmers. Verse 12, greet Trephenia and Tryphosa, 
workers in the Lord. End quote. Then Paul meshes the two together, worker and beloved, by saying, quote, Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. End quote. There are never mutually exclusive or even far apart, but where you have one, you will have the, unlo- the other. Unless, of course, a person's motives have gone astray or awry. Then Paul identifies in verse 13, Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. End quote. You know, the family idea among Christians in those days was so real, so felt, that a statement could be made like his mother and mine without being able to know was he talking biologically or spiritually. And in fact, it doesn't even matter when the church is living like a family. I mean, I've been so close in in my early years in, in the church that welcomed me so well when the church, for good reason, you know, had kicked me to the curb. And that's, that's what the church is. The church is a family. It's meant to be more of a family than your own family. And Jesus said that to Peter. I mean, what are we going to get out of all this? Are you going to have family? I'm paraphrasing. Then Paul just lists names of people to greet with no identifiers. We can only wonder if there was nothing to say or if he was just getting tired. (laughs) I don't know. Greet, and he gives name after name after name, and the brethren with them, not even named. Greet Philogus and Julia, you know, Nerissus and his sister and Olympus, and and all the saints who are with them. And with, you know, they're together. With all the love in those relationships, he emphasizes the importance of holiness and says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Then comes the word of warning, as it must. Quote, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and away from them. And turn away from them. Please notice that Paul never found saying is never found saying something so foolish as doctrine divides nope paul says to divide because of doctrine that's what he just said however we must be clear on why he says this and how he identifies doctrine as divisive verse 18 for such men are slaves not of our lord christ but of their own appetites And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Innocent, you know, it's not not even, you're so far away from it, you're not even aware of it. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's, That's a great word of hope. You know, what then is Paul talking about when he says, for such men are slaves of their own appetites, not of our Lord? You know, I really believe that we are so wealthy in America that it is much harder to see when people's appetites are, are, are for nice things and lifestyles because to a great degree, we're all, we all take part. You know, and I mean, it's filthy, rich, 
And I just used that word, filthy, rich, covered with all kinds of money, can't possibly use it for himself. Then, uh, then they're rich. But we're rich by the world standards. We are rich in America. When poverty abounds and the few rich give away their things and possessions to support the poor, when poverty abounds and a few rich give away their things and possessions to support the poor, that is a good indicator that they are not in it for the money. What am I saying? Let's get real for a second. Is it enticing to live off our words and make many people respect and appreciate our words? Isn't it more difficult to lead a church when dying literally for that church is a real possibility? Would there be as many pastors, TV evangelists, health and wealth preachers today if, or, if they were at risk for their lives? I mean, look what happened during COVID. Do I need to say anything? But we must stop there and ask even about evangelical conservative churches also. Remember, if we are not obedient to all the commands of Christ, we're suspect. Now, I've been talking, and I've been doing this for quite a while now, and I'm, I'm tired of hearing myself talk about division in the church. I mean, when it is the to church and individual churches all across our nation in the West, that's all I'm going to speak for. I'm going to just stop and start praying a lot about division in the church. It's like it doesn't matter. It's like Paul never wrote to the Corinthians and said, what's this division going on? I mean, you're carnal. I mean, those commands that I'm talking about right now include Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and a, and a, a large space in the New Testament where holiness, the holiness of God demands believer and unbeliever to be distinguished, not just squish them all together to have a big church. I got a lot of numbers. I must be doing something right. Those commands, they, they, they're commands. They're not to be just thrown away. I mean, Paul's entire letter to the Corinthians, all the commands there and all the negativity they threw in, and how much of the Corinthian church is alive today in so many churches. Lastly, anyone who names the name of Christ, anyone who's given their heart to Christ, anyone who believes in the resurrection from the dead, anyone who believes in the judgment seat of Christ, on the elect, on the chosen, on, on believers, anyone who believes that, ought to really step back and, start and, and understand in themselves, are they able to discern leadership when it's leadership for the wrong reason? And not talking about being divisive, I'm talking about raising the awareness in the church. In the house church, people work. There can be financial help and support of the shepherds when necessary, as was done for the apostles who all died for their faith. Then there was Paul who preferred to work with his own hands and not live off the gospel, except when times got especially difficult. In the house church, everyone has to step up. There can be little to no, I can't go to seminary and I can't teach. Are there more gifted teachers than Others, sure. 
but there are also far more people capable of leading than our present system makes possible. That's why I say, oh, I can't go to seminary. I'm just not, it's not in me. Why isn't it in you? Do you, you see standing up in the front and being on the spotlight as something that really turns you off? No one should be in the spotlight in that way anyway. I mean, the church has always had its Spurgeons and its Luthers and, and its Martin Lloyd-Joneses and whoever the great men you may know and you've been blessed by, either in their writings or hearing them. You know, these men are few, 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 few and far between. The vast uh, number of people, at least who say they're Christian, in, that fill churches will never turn out to be those men with a special call like that who speak to their generation. But the church is filled with people who are not working and should. There's no doubt in my mind. We are the product of the, of the Church of Rome, or the Holy Roman Church, with its popes, cardinals, bishops, and priests that secularize the membership and make it subservient to the church. I mean, it's so much more subtle in Protestantism, but it is just as real. It is the church that saves in, in, in that environment and not Christ. And I'm talking about the Roman Catholic Church. The church saves. I, I was raised Roman Catholic. That's what it is. After the Reformation, the gospel was recovered, but has been lost to many for the, for, for the previous 200 years. And I'm talking about Reformation theology. I mean, it was rescued. And now Luther and Calvin and those guys are cursed because they didn't know what they were talking about, and they're preaching a different gospel. Excuse me, they got it right, we get it wrong. Their concern was that it would be lost, and it's been lost in large measure. The church is more tradition than it is honesty, transparency, and mutual sharing of the troubles and joys, praying and praise, thanksgiving, confession, intercession, reading of scriptures, singing all around honesty, and people want to go back to something natural, and even that gets forced. You know, in a little in a little house church, where people can come in and they can voice their troubles, their woes, their persecution, or standing up for the gospel, or maybe they're not doing it and they want to. All of those things can become very real, and as people continue to share the gospel, and people really get saved, and people in the house church really grow, and they should. And I'm going to give you a three-year span before they need to start doing it to some extent by themselves. And not by themselves without the oversight of more mature and older Christians, but the houses can multiply and the people can still get together and the people can still fellowship and disciple together. And in that growth is how the New Testament began. And it's the blueprint. It's the blueprint. Tradition does not dictate that the West has to do church the way it's done. And you, have, you know, 100 people is just, it's, it's too small. But, oh, it seems so large for house church is big enough. And if it gets to 50 people, if a person has a really huge house, there's nothing against it, but it should continue to grow and grow into other churches, other house churches. There should be no putting on airs, no showing up with your tie and looking nice, and it doesn't matter how you dress. But, you know, putting on airs, when you know you, you and your wife are yelling in the morning before that and the kids and, and all carrying on and forget about what goes on during the week, this is not Christianity at its best. It's not even Christianity. It's hypocrisy. 
A thing, by the way, that the Lord hates more than anything else. Church should never be entertaining, but a holy reality of God's presence. Not to satisfy our emotions, but to deal with the world around us and the evil spiritual realm above us so that we can live with joy through it all. Should I say that last part? I mean, that, that's what we need. That's what the church is. That's what it needs to be. And if you're going to church and you're getting nice music and professional sound and you think that's worship, man, you got a long way to go to get to the truth. That's not church. That's not meeting people's needs. And if you're in the house church, you need to be meeting the, peace, the, the needs of others. Why? Because you spend time in the Word during the week. You have a word to share. You open your mouth and you start praying. You know, you bless people in a multitude of ways. I mean, pray for me because this is where I want to go. I'm, I'm pretty much worn out with traditional church. Doesn't mean there aren't good people there, but I think a lot of the good people there could be blessed so much more and could bless others so much more in the house church. And it may have to happen soon anyway, because if the, when the government comes down and America loses its constitution, I'm not sure when that's going to happen, but don't put your eggs in the basket that it says it's never going to happen in my lifetime. And but because if it does happen, you're going to have to go to house church anyway. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace in all of our lives. I can't thank you enough. We cannot thank you enough for sending the Lord Jesus Christ who you became a man, Lord. You put on human flesh, born in a stable, stinking stable. And, and yet, no matter how it stunk in that place, where they kept the horses and who knows what, there was the glory of God in a baby. I thank you, Lord, that you were willing to humble yourself in that manner. And you never did any miracles or warranted any praise until you were 30-ish or so. And at that time, all you did was care about the needs of others. A little thing like turning water into wine to meet your mother's need in the flesh. And then you ended it, you know. This is done. This relationship is over. I'm God and I'm revealing that. And I'm going to the cross to die for your sins. I, I wanted, You wanted to do that for Mary. But, you know, it was the, it was the starting point. It was the first miracle. And it was leading to Calvary. And we can't comprehend the suffering that went on during those hours when it went dark. And God's wrath in some incredible manner re reached out in eternity to pay the price for sin. Lord, I, I praise you for your sacrificial love.
and proving and revealing to us what love really is. It's not selfish. It's not self-seeking. It's not self-centered. It's other-centered. I ask, dear Lord, for a, a movement of the Holy Spirit to bring the church back to where it belongs. Not just in a, in a building, what we call a house, but to being a family, to being caring, desiring growth in the best possible way. Instead of paying for a building, paying all that money for missionary endeavor, sending people out, for reaching the community and communities beyond us, for being a healthy church, one mind, one heart, one doctrine, one belief. The Holy Spirit can do it. I'm not looking to men. We can't do it. When people say it can't be done, they're out. They're right. But you can. If you can part the Red Sea, if you can make people walk on dry land that was just a sea minutes before, if you can suck the water all out of that, if you can make water come from a rock, not a well, a rock, if you can create everything from nothing with a word, then you can change the church, people's hearts, to be grieved over the division in the church and the pettiness and the strife. And God help us to pride. There's just so much pride. I could ask for forgiveness. I would rather ask for cleansing among those who are saved because the forgiveness is there. But we need to have our consciences cleansed so that we can see. I ask all these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen.